Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of our favorite things in life, Clint, is collaboration, right? Yes. It's why you and I are such good friends, and it's why we love doing this podcast. There's a quote I love from the 19th century American poet and novelist, Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women and friend and collaborator of people like Emerson, Hawthorne, Thoreau, and Longfellow. Alcott said, it takes two flints to make a fire. In this episode... We talk about when great artists came together and sparks flew. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. This show is sort of like car talk meets behind the music. Ooh, Clint, I like that. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college. So today, with the help of some smart people, we're going to come up with the answer. Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's question is, what is the greatest collaboration in music history? That's the age-old question. This really is what you and I live for. Collaboration. Yes, 100%. And there's an expression, collaboration is multiplication. And you and I, those are words we live by. Yeah. Not addition. Multiplication. Multiplication. So what are the greatest collaborations in music history? Some guiding criteria for our discussion. Because we're talking about short-lived collaborations, not like permanent ones. Lennon and McCartney is probably the greatest musical collaboration. Right. We're talking about when two or more artists come together for what isn't their main thing. Right. So like CSNY doesn't count. Doesn't count. Because that was their main thing. Right. Became their Became main thing. Became their main yeah. thing. Great collaboration, though. Quite good. <laughs> okay. I'm going to start. Start us off. All right. 2013. Mm-hmm. That was a good year. Quite a good year, especially for music. Actually, quite a good year. My first choice is Wake Me Up. Avicii is Tim Bergling, but he goes by Avicii. And he is credited as the artist for this song. But what is fascinating about this song is that it is a three-way collaboration. Huh. So Avicii is, he's very big in EDM, electronic dance music. Yep. So he started at the age of 16. He began posting his remixes of electronic music onto these forums. And that literally led to his first record deal. He was like a kid and he was making these songs in his house. Sort of like Owl City. Totally like Owl City. Exactly. Living in his parents basement right making hits right so he blows up in 2011 with this with his hit song levels but cut to 2013 he's in la yep calls up mike einziger who is the guitar player for a band called incubus hmm. and incubus is one of my favorite bands i've listened to them for years and years they're i mean i think they've been around for 30 plus years i don't think i know anything about incubus really Drive would be their big hit, if you could call it that. So Mike is the guitar player. Mike had never heard of Avicii, right? He doesn't listen to electronic dance music, and Avicii comes over to his studio at his house. To do a co-write. To do a co-write. And Mike is playing acoustic guitar, and Avicii's playing keys, and they get this chord progression. 
They both get really excited about it. But neither of them can sing. So that night, Avicii was supposed to have a session with a guy, Aloe Black. Uh, he was a rapper. Hmm. And he's also got like the most soulful voice in the world. Love the voice. Mike and Avicii were like, we got to get a singer on this because they were so excited about it. They invite Aloe over. He comes over brings his phone with his lyrics and he had written these lyrics on a plane. They crush the song in a couple hours. Then Avicii does his thing. It becomes this folk tronica, a mashup of these two genres. Wake Me Up is born. They tell me I'm too young to understand. They say I'm caught up in a dream. Well, life will pass me by if I don't open up my eyes. So that's fine by me. So wake me up when it's all over When I'm wiser and I'm older All this time I was finding myself And I didn't know I was lost And that's a point that I want to make about this week is the greatest collaborations of all time, in my opinion, have occurred when people from seemingly disparate genres come together to create a new genre. Interesting. Right? Okay. So that is yep. definitely the case with this. Yes. In that... Folktronica. And the coolest part about this song, Wake Me Up, is that the hook is an instrumental hook. The hook of the song is... Right? So that's a huge part of the song. But it's also got... So wake me up. got an awesome chorus but then it's like this bonus section so it, that's really the mashup so they kept the acoustic guitar it becomes a huge hit around this time 2013 bands like Mumford and Sons the Lumineers were all huge right. so that acoustic that four, sound four on the floor bass drum acoustic guitar acoustic guitar was all the rage yes and so this was like the next level of that and it really crossed over. It was a massive, massive hit. It was like number one in every country in the world. Huge. Huge, massive hit. It's sort of a similar thing to one of our favorite albums, White Ladder yes. by David Gray. Yeah. It's taking this acoustic guitar thing and melding it with electronic beats and synths and stuff. Folktronica 13 years earlier. Right. Totally. Especially that first song. Please forgive me if I act a little strange. So that's my first one, Wake Me Up by Avicii. Avicii died fairly recently. He did. There's actually a great documentary about him. He did not like to perform. Hmm. He had massive stage fright. So this guy who just like sits in his house and makes music. Like a mad scientist. Has to go out and perform at these festivals that are like, a hundred thousand people. An introvert who loved to build and construct these incredible and collaborate and collaborate. That was his big thing. All the the hits that he had, the songs that he did, were all collaborations. were all collaborations. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, Avicii, and thank you for that track. Yeah, great collaboration. What do you got? My first nominee nomination nominee. My first track, <laughs> Money for Nothing by Dire Straits oh. with Sting. It's the second track on their 1985 release, Brothers in Arms, and it's the band's most successful single, reaching number one in the U.S. and in a lot of other countries. The single was released in June 1985, and a month later, Sting joined Dire Straits on stage at Live Aid to perform the song, and it won the Grammy the next year. The guitar riff, Clint, was inspired by ZZ Top guitarist Billy Gibbons, his trademark guitar tone. Mark Knopfler, the lead singer, songwriter, and guitarist for Dire Straits, called up Billy Gibbons, asking him for advice on how to replicate that sound. What? Are you serious? Billy Gibbons later said, he actually didn't do a half bad job considering I never told him a goddamn thing. <laughs> it's one of the all-time great rock riffs. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. 
song is told from the point of view of a working class guy watching music videos and commenting on how rock stars seem to get paid for doing nothing and they get their chicks for free. <laughs> in an interview in 2000 on the BBC program Parkinson, Mark Knopfler explained how he wrote the song. Tell us about Money for Nothing, which is one of the most famous songs you wrote and where that came from. It was in New York and it was in a kitchen appliance store and it had a window a kitchen window display in the window and then there'd be a row of microwaves and then at the back of the store was a big wall of televisions all all tuned to mtv there was some bonehead who worked for the store a great big macho guy with a you know with a check shirt on and a cap and a pair of work boots and he'd been delivering stuff at the back and he so he was watching mtv and he was saying all these great lines about, you know, that ain't working, you know, that's the way you do it and stuff like that. And the, and the, what's, that what's that Hawaiian noises he was saying? And so I, was, I just thought it was so classic that uh, I went and asked for a pen and paper and um, started writing the lines down, you know. And then when I started putting it to music, again, that old finger and something, it's sort of a double... You know. That is awesome. We talked in a previous episode about songs that haven't aged well. And some might suggest that this one hasn't because there's a verse that uses a homophobic slur. Speaking to Rolling Stone magazine the year it came out, Knopfler said, I'm still of two minds as to whether it's a good idea to write songs that aren't in the first person, to take on other characters. The singer in Money for Nothing is a real ignoramus. So Knopfler was creating a character, a persona, a macho loudmouth who, in 1984, when the song was written, would have spoken like that. Mm -hmm. I heard the song on the radio a couple days ago, and they just cut out the third verse entirely. Just went straight to the chorus. Whoa, that's amazing. But this episode is about great collaborations. And the song starts with Sting's famous, I want my MTV line. The songwriting credits are shared between Mark Knopfler and Sting, but Sting has said his only compositional contribution was the I Want My MTV line, which followed the melody from his song Don't Stand So Close To Me. The song was recorded in the Caribbean island of Montserrat at the famous Air Studios, built by legendary producer George Martin, who of course was the great producer for the Beatles. The police recorded a number of albums there, including Synchronicity, and other artists that recorded there included The Stones, Paul McCartney, Marvin Gaye, Elton John did three albums there. After The Stones recorded Steel Wheels there in 1989, a massive hurricane devastated the island and the studio. But five years before the hurricane, Dire Straits was there recording Brothers in Arms. And during that time, Sting was on vacation, windsurfing in Montserrat. According to the band's bass player, John Ilsley, he came up for supper at the studio and we played him money for nothing. And he turned around and said, well, you've done it this time, you bastards. <laughs> Mark said, if he thought it was so good, why didn't he go in and add something to it? And he did. He did his bit there and then. I love Clint. This thought of Sting, who'd been out windsurfing that day, comes in, listens to the song, and is inspired to add his thing, which becomes one of the most iconic oh rock songs of the 80s. I should have learned to play the guitar. I should have learned to play. And that line that he adds becomes like the most universally known thing totally. ever. It kind of makes the song in a weird way. Like it wouldn't be the same it song. It wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't. So two flints making a fire. Unbelievable. All right. My next one is a little track called Under Pressure. And this is a David Bowie and Queen collaboration. Love it. So the story goes... Queen are recording, and they have this song, and the song is called Feel Like, 
And they've been working on this song for a long time, but they weren't satisfied. They're in Mountain Studios, and it's in Switzerland. Switzerland. Montreux. Yeah. So they're in the studio. They have this basic track called Feel Like, and there's actually versions. In fact, let's take a listen to it. feel like when it was just a queen song correct and it doesn't have the bass line mm. in the bass line um which the is way... which is like really the most definitive part of the song so david bowie had originally gone to mountain studios to record a different song a song called cool cat but his vocals were removed from that song because he wasn't satisfied with his performance but while there they did this little jam session on feel like as they're writing the song and they're going through it, Freddie Mercury is scatting lyrics. You know, he's just making up lyrics. And that's why in the track, there's a lot of them. You know, there's all those it's little like... It's such a weird vocal. It's such a weird vocal because it's literally part of the writing process. So... According to John Deacon, who is Queen's bassist, the song was pretty much written by Freddie Mercury. Uh-huh. But David Bowie wrote most of the lyrics. They're jamming all day. They go out to dinner. They come back from dinner. And John Deacon can't remember the exact bass line that he was doing. And originally it was... Dun, 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 straight. Right, so six notes and then one note a fourth down. But when they got back, David Bowie like misremembered, misremembered it, and that's how we get dun 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 dun. dun. dun, dun, dun which is one of the m- most universal bass lines of all time. Anybody who picks up a bass at Guitar Center who's never played a bass plays that plays that it's like the blackbird of bass right it's like the thing that you learn originally so it only peaked at 29 on the billboard hot 100 in america but it was played at every single queen concert from 1981 till the band ended touring in 86 that's amazing so it was a huge hit for them And I've played this song a bunch. Yes. And I saw you play it just a couple days ago. Yeah, and it is so fun to play the outro to this song. Because it's pretty chill. It's pretty mid-tempo. Yeah. But then it's just get you're like, Yarrr! it's like full distortion, and you just get so cooking. And not that many people can sing Freddie Mercury. You, you need a special vocalist yeah, to, and to pull it off. That we have the one and only Josh Panda singing it with us. So that definitely makes it. But it's sort of the same concept as Dire Straits and Sting, where they weren't planning on doing this song. They were doing something else. And then they just sort of found this. Some magic occurred. Magic occurred. And they captured it. I put those songs in the same level, really. Yeah. Money for Nothing and Under, Under Pressure. Pressure. They're like yeah. classic, classic tunes that never would have been the same had those two parties not gone together. Right. Queen and David Bowie, Dire Straits and Sting. And the bass line, obviously, is the bass line... Ice Ice Baby. Ice Ice Baby. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like but, so, A certain portion of the world 
knows that baseline as the baseline for Ice Ice Baby. Right. Let's kick it. And those people, those people are are missing out. <laughs> and I, there's some sort of thing that they changed one note. I don't know. Oh, really? Right? Yeah. Like it's like that's what Vanilla Ice always said. It's not exactly the same. It's like we. Uh, I don't know. What? I don't know. Sounds exactly. Sounds the same. exactly the same. So that's a good one. Under pressure. It's a great one. Well, I'd like to stay with David Bowie, if I may. Okay. Mick Jagger and David Bowie. <laughs> Dancing in the streets. Oh my god, the video! <laughs> You're laughing because, well, let me let me take a step back. Dancing in the streets was written by Marvin Gaye. Yeah, and with William Mickey Stevenson, who was at the time the head of A and R at Motown through its glory days. He co-wrote a bunch of songs with Marvin Gaye, including Gaye's great collaboration with Kim Weston. It takes two. He also wrote the great song, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. And he produced Stevie Wonder's Uptight, Everything is Alright. Nice. All right, but back to Dancing in the Streets. It was made popular by Martha and the Vandellas, who reached number two in 1964 with their version. Van Halen did a cover in 1982. Which went to number 38 in the charts. But in 1985, Mick Jagger and David Bowie had a hit with it, reaching number one in the UK and a top 10 in the US. It brought together two of Rock's biggest icons to raise money for 1985's Live Aid, second Live Aid mention of this episode. The original plan was to have Bowie performing it live in London's Wembley Stadium with Mick Jagger singing live at JFK Stadium in Philly. But they realized that the satellite link caused a half-second delay, and so it was ruled out. Whoa. Instead, since Bowie was recording an album in New York City, Mick Jagger hopped on a plane... And flew in so they record the song together the track was produced by alan win stanley who was producing bowie's solo album he thought the arrangement and the track were terrible <laughs> he said i sat there listening with my head in my hands thinking what the f- is this <laughs> wow it was released august 12th 1985 with all the profits going to charity in 2011, it was voted the eighth best collaboration of all time in a Rolling Stone magazine readers poll. The studio band Clint includes G.E. Smith. Remember him? Oh yeah, Saturday Night Live. And Lenny Pickett on the saxophone. On the saxophone, our, man. our guy <laughs> who was also joined the SNL band that year wow. and is still on the SNL wow. band. That's awesome. Maybe the reason I love this song and I included it was really a chance for us to talk about the YouTube. (laughs) It makes us laugh so much. Someone posted a version of this song where the music has been removed from the music video and it's been replaced with weird noises of these two guys preening around the set. Just making weird sounds. Oh my god, dancing. Like (laughs) dancing. And singing badly. Oh god, it's so
Are you ready for a brand new beat? Someone's here and the time is right For dancing in the street Dancing out People are so good at the internet. <laughs> the internet. You're right. People are so good. They're at the so internet. good. So that that example. Yeah. That they didn't write the song. No. And they're both massive stars. Yes. And it's for charity. Yeah. So I get it. Do you think they wanted to do that, or is that like somebody's record company decision to put those guys together to do it? They obviously knew each other. They were obviously had mutual respect for each other. They probably wanted to do a song together. Right. It's an interesting choice for a cover. It is, except, you know, it's it's for Live Aid, which was a global event, and they're talking about, you know, like... So they didn't come up with it then, because that's some, like the TV producer. I think some, like, marketing guy yeah. was like, hey, I got it. Picture this. <laughs> All right, that's a good one. So, as I said, really more excuse to talk about <laughs> that incredible YouTube video, which we highly recommend. Highly recommend. All right. The next one yes. is maybe the biggest collaboration of all time. Oh. Because this created an entirely new genre. Okay, I can't wait. A little band called Aerosmith. Oh. Is in Hawaii opening up for the Guess Who. And they're at Soundcheck. And Joe Perry's on stage, and Jeff Beck had recently turned him on to the meters. And that riff, like Sissy Strut. It's just guitar riff, right? It's an instrumental jam. So Joe Perry's like, I kind of want to write a riff thing. So he starts fiddling around and comes up with... this way inspiration or theft definitely inspiration <laughs> nice so so he's he's doing it and they're in the sound check steven gets on the kit lays down a simple beat and then he's he's like i don't want to do like a one four five thing so the riff is actually in e huh. the verse goes to a c which musically speaking is is very cool maybe not what you'd expect yeah so starts riffing on the c so now he's got another little riff in c and meanwhile steven tyler's on the drums but he starts beep dip skip a dip a doop a dip just starts scatting like we were talking about before right just starts making up lyrics but it's real rhythmic now that whole thing was in 1974 when he came up with that lick cut to 1975 they're recording toys in the attic the record plant new york end up laying it down Eventually, they take a break, and they go see the movie Young Frankenstein. Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. Love it. And returning to the studio after they seen the movie, they were laughing about the way in the movie Marty Feldman was telling Gene Hackman to follow him in the film, saying, walk this way, and he's limping. And so the producer was like, hey, that's a good title for this song. So at the hotel that night, Tyler goes back, writes all the lyrics for the song. But on the way to the studio the next day, Forgot the lyrics in the cab. Oh, my God. And the God. band's like, sure, you wrote the lyrics. So he takes a cassette tape with the instrumental track and a portable tape player, headphones, and he disappears into the stairwell. And he grabs a couple of number two pencils, but forgot to take paper. <laughs> so he must have been really high during this oh, period. Yeah, he's a mess. So he writes the lyrics on the wall at the record plant's top floor and then down the a few stairs of the back of the stairway. Like literally writing the on words the on the wall and the stairs. A couple hours later, he runs downstairs, gets a legal pad, comes back up, copies them down. That's how the lyrics were written for Walk This Way. Now we're going to jump to 1986. Rick Rubin is producing 
Raising Hell, which is the Run DMC album. And they literally are early, early, early pioneers of hip-hop music. They're in the studio wondering what to do, and Rick Rubin pulls out Toys in the Attic. And he's like, check this out. Because it starts with that drum beat, it was a very sampled thing in early hip-hop. Interesting. Right? Rick Rubin was like, why don't we just do a straight-up cover of this song? Hmm. And nobody wanted to do it. Well, Jam Master Jay was cool. He was like, all right, we can try it. But Simmons and McDaniel were like, that's just a dumb idea. I don't want to do it. And the lyrics are kind of rap-like. Yeah, I think it is a huge precursor to rap music. Yeah. It's just got melody. Right. But not much melody. That's the thing. It's real like monotone melody. Monotone percussiveness. Exactly. And that's kind of Steven Tyler's thing in a lot of cases. So they cut the song begrudgingly they did not want it released as a single even after bringing steven tyler and joe perry into the studio to do the whole thing so it wasn't like they just sampled the song they re-recorded the song and if you notice the way Aerosmith sings the chorus is different than the way Steven Tyler sings the chorus in the later in the Run DMC version. And I think it's much catchier in the Run DMC version. And Aerosmith now does it that way. The Run DMC version of Walk This Way charted higher than the original, peaking at number four. So here's an example of a rock band who had pretty much fallen off the charts. Hmm. Steven was battling addiction. Joe Perry was battling addiction. They weren't playing that much. They were heading towards being like a legacy band. Yeah. This track goes high up in the charts. Totally re-stimulates their career. Post this, they start having hit after hit after right. hit. So it really brought them back into the world of popular music. Yeah. All because of Rick Rubin. We keep coming back yeah. to Rick Rubin. It's amazing. This guy really has something that you can't explain. Why would he even think that that would work? It's really genius. And he single-handedly created rap rock. Right. Which is now like a massive part of the music industry. Here's this guy, Rick Rubin, who's behind the Beastie Boys. He's behind this collaboration between Run DMC and Aerosmith. And then he makes this one of the most incredible, like primarily acoustic-driven albums with Tom Petty yeah. in Wildflowers. Range. Range. And, and Blood Sugar Sex Magic by Red Hot Chili Peppers is a masterpiece. Is a masterpiece. And totally different. And then the Johnny Cash... I mean, he's all over the map. He's a legend. But this song in particular, it's not my pick for the greatest collaboration of all time. But because, it's up there. Because they didn't write it together. Right. But that's the only reason. Otherwise, I think it, it may be one of the biggest collaborations of all time because of what it's done to music. Who do you got next, Rich? To be young is to be sad is to be high by Ryan Adams with David Rawlings. Oh, wow. I didn't know that was a collab. So this is a deep cut. Track is the opening song on the debut solo album of Ryan Adams. Important to distinguish here. This is not Brian Adams. Big difference. The Canadian rocker who gave us Summer of 69. Different. I got my first real six string. Rolled out the five and done. Different. To Be Young is the first song on one of my favorite albums of the 2000s. It was released September 2000, and our friend Pete Francis, formerly of Dispatch, he turned me on to this record, and for that, I am always grateful. It's produced by Ethan Johns, son of the legendary record producer Glyn Johns, who produced The Stones and Clapton and Zeppelin, The Who, among others. Ethan Johns also produced another of my favorite records from that era, Ray LaMontagne's debut, Trouble. Trouble, 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 bent dog in my 
More on that album maybe in a future episode. Ryan Adams had been in the band Whiskey Town from Raleigh, North Carolina. But as that band fell apart, he moved to Nashville to start his solo career. He has two amazing collaborations on this record. One track is called Oh My Sweet Carolina with Emmylou Harris. Oh my sweet Carolina What compels me to go Oh my sweet disposition May you one day carry To Be Young is a collaboration between Ryan Adams and David Rawlings. Rawlings is one of the best guitarists I've ever seen live. He's incredible. Hmm. And he's the partner, professionally and in life, of Gillian Welch. But every The track starts with an argument between Ryan Adams and David Rawlings on the subject of whether Suede Head by Morrissey is on the Morrissey album Viva Hate or the next one, Bona Drag. No, Bona Drag, baby. No, it's, no, it's Viva Hate. No, I looked. It's on Bona Drag because it was a two. single. But oh. it's, it's the sixth track on Viva Hate. It's on Viva Hate too? Because mm-hmm. I looked Suede for it Head, the other yeah. day. Yeah, it's on there. But it's on Bone and Drag. It's Bone and Drag's collection of all his singles after the first couple. I don't think of it's on Viva Hate, man. We'll have to look when I get home. Oh, I bet you five bucks. I no, swear. I'll take that bet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's on there. One, two. Oh, Hello, soda. Yeah. He, he's got a mouthful of cookies. <laughs> Left for dead. One, two, one. Woo! That's how the album starts, which right there, right off the bat, sets the tone that this record is for music fans, not just casual listeners. And the hook and the harmonies are incredible. Oh, one day when you're looking back, you were young and mine, you were sad. When you're young, you get sad. When you're young, you get sad. Then you get I love this track. I love this album. I think everyone should know it. And if you ever saw the movie Old School, yes, it's right at the beginning of that movie. And I'd never heard the song until that movie. There's an example There's another. of a song entering my consciousness. Such a good song. Wow, I did not know that. Great bridge in that song, too. Great bridge. Great bridge. Great This is good songwriting. Yeah, really song craft. What else you got? All right, Rich, I'm ready to give you my number one for best collaboration Great. in music history. Are, Are you, you ready? Yes. You're ready. My favorite collaboration of all time is the song Get Lucky. Get Lucky is a song by electronic music duo Daft Punk, and it's got Pharrell Williams singing. But what makes this track so good for me is Niall Rogers' guitar part. So it was co-written by all of them. It took 18 months for this song to come together. Wow. So Daft Punk and Niall Rogers had been trying to work together for a long time. Never worked out. So, by the way, 2013 again. Yeah. 
That was your first song. Massive year in music. Yeah. Blurred Lines from last week was 2013. Right. Radioactive by Imagine Dragons was that year. Some hits Some that iconic year. Iconic hits. I, yeah. What was in the water? Yeah. So the duo invited Rogers to the sessions at Electric Lady Studios in New York City. And Nile Rogers, first of all, if you don't know Nile Rogers, you gotta get you gotta get on the on the bus here. He's written and produced and performed on albums that have sold more than 500 million units. He's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, three-time Grammy Award winner, and the chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So he's got this super rhythmic chucking thing that he does on the guitar. And it's like the fourth position strat sound. You know it's Nile Rodgers because no one can reproduce it the same way. That's incredible. It's whatever he's got, he's got it. I would say that now Rogers is an example of someone in music who music fans know, but the casual music listener Agreed. wouldn't know him, but knows a lot of his music. So before Rogers got there, they had a demo of the song. It was rough, and it centered on the Wurlitzer electric piano as like the main instrument of the thing. So Rogers listens to the tune, and he's thinking, and he, he asks the engineer, he says, Pull everything out except the drums. And he goes in the studio, into the, you know, into the booth, starts riffing on the guitar, and he's watching the Daft Punk guys, and he's like, he can tell when he lands it. And then everybody re-records the song to the guitar. And the, the guitar is the centerpiece of this song now. Nathan East on bass, who's like, you Eric know, Clapton's. Clapton and everybody else. He's yeah. like massive session dude. Now you've got this track. It's a banging track. It's like disco, pop, soul, funk, but with a modern twist because you've got this electronic duo at the helm of the yeah. whole thing. So now, who are they going to get to sing this song? So apparently, Pharrell Williams is at a, a party for Madonna. Here's about this song. And he's like, Yo, I'll do anything you want. If you just want me to play tambourine, I'll do it. So he flies to Paris. Pharrell wrote the lyrics, cuts the vocal. Apparently, they, they were very like specific about what they wanted. So now, they release the song. And just goes number one forever. Like, every country wins the Grammy for Record of the Year. Their album wins Album of the Year. Hmm. It was just a massive hit. She's up all night to the sun. I'm up all night to get some. She's up all night for good fun. I'm up all night to get lucky. We're up all night to the sun. We're up all night to get some. We're up all night for good fun. We're up all night to get lucky. We're up all night to get lucky. We're up all night to get lucky. The reason this is my favorite collaboration is because. Again, you have three monsters of the music industry. Right. They each gave their own part to the song. To create something multipli- multiplicative? <laughs> multiplicative. Yes, it couldn't happen without all three of them being there. Right. Pharrell's voice, but the guitar part, and then the all the electronic stuff in the outro and the bridge, that vocoder stuff that Daft Punk does to it. Yeah. It's just a perfect song. Side note, 116 beats per minute, which is classic, classic dance BPM. You're saying 116 is like the sweet spot. Sweet spot. Billie Jean is 117, but 116 is uptown and get lucky. So there's there's something, something about that around that zone that just feels good when you that you just want to yeah shake groove. it yeah. That's my choice for the best collaboration of, of all time. Get lucky, get lucky. I love that song. I've seen you play that a bunch, and it kills every time. And I. I love it. Yeah. I, I keep loving it. I don't know a lot of songs like that. It's just fun and feels good. Who you got, Richie? I've been waiting 23 episodes <laughs> to have a chance to talk about the Traveling Wilburys. Okay. We talked briefly about them in our debut episode, Can You Write a Masterpiece After 40? The Wilburys were the collaboration between George Harrison, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, and Jeff Lynne. The story goes that George Harrison was making a solo album. In 1987, with Jeff Lynne, who had been the creative force behind the band ELO.
the solo album they were working on would become George Harrison's album, Cloud Nine. The previous year, George Harrison had struck up a friendship with Tom Petty when the Heartbreakers were opening for Bob Dylan. When Harrison came to L.A. to work with Jeff Lynne on Cloud Nine, he continued to hang out with Petty. And Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne became friends. And Lynne started working on the solo record of Tom Petty's that would ultimately become Full Moon Fever. In the spring of 1988, Warner Brothers was asking George Harrison for a new song to serve as a B-side for the European release of the third single off Cloud Nine. He was in L.A. having dinner with Jeff Lynne and Roy Orbison, the legendary singer who burst onto the scene in the early 60s with songs like Only the Lonely. Only the Lonely Pretty woman. pretty woman, walking down the street, pretty woman, the kind I like to meet, pretty woman, I don't believe you, you're not the truth, no one could look as good as you. Anyway, George, Jeff, and Roy are sitting having dinner in L.A., and George is complaining about having to deliver a new song to Warner Brothers. So he asks Jeff and Roy if they join him in the studio the next day. They said, sure, where are you recording? George says, good point. Pretty hard to find a studio last minute in L.A. at this time. <laughs> so he calls up Bob Dylan to ask if they could use his home studio in Malibu. George had left a guitar at Tom Petty's house. So on his way to retrieve his guitar before the session, he says to Petty, hey, you want to come along? Come on. So there they are. Tom Petty, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, and Jeff Lynn at Bob Dylan's house. <laughs> it's like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> I know. That day they recorded a song that George had started writing called Handle With Care. Situation's terrible. When George presents the song to Warner Brothers, they said the song was too good to be wasted as a B-side on some European single release. And they asked George if he could rally the group for a full album. Bob Dylan was about to head out on tour, and so they all agreed to gather at Dave Stewart's house. Dave Stewart was from the Eurythmics with Annie Lennox. They wrote and recorded a song a day over a 10-day period in May of 1988. The name Wilburys originated from the Cloud Nine session. George had sung a vocal take that in one section, his voice had trembled a bit, and Jeff Lynn said, don't worry, we'll bury it. And that joke, Woolbury, Woolburys, every time there was a bad note, they'd say, that's a Woolburys. <laughs> no way. And then it became Trembling Woolburys, and later evolved into Traveling Woolburys. Wow. The album was called Traveling Woolburys Volume 1. And it features some great songs. It was released in October 1988. And I remember as a 12-year-old listening to this record nonstop. Songs like Heading for the Light. I wandered around nothing more than time on End of the line. Well, it's all right. Riding around in the breeze. Well, it's all right. If you live the life you please, well, it's last night. Last night. Thinking about last. 
congratulations. Congratulations for breaking my heart. Congratulations for tearing it all apart. And the undeniably Dylan-esque Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Wilburys is an incredible collection of talent. All five members are inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Petty said in 2007 that the magic of the Wilburys was that it happened organically, free of any intervention from record companies or management or marketing, developed naturally from a spirit of cooperation and mutual admiration among the five established artists. I love the Traveling Wilburys. That's an incredible story. I had no idea. What a funny way to come up with a Wilburys. No, we'll bury it. We'll bury it in the mix. That's so good. So you're going Wilburys. Yes. I'm going Daft Punk. Yes. Man, the Wilburys might be. It's a better collaboration. It's five huge artists collaborating on a project. I like I like Daft Punk because it's just it was short, it was sweet, and it was done. Yes. And it landed. Did we do it? I think we did. Wait, we did it. I think we, we did, did it, it again. again. 23 times we've done it. Oh my God. Or at least 22. <laughs> at least 22. We hope you had a good time, as much fun as we did, and we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age-old age question. question. Follow us on Instagram at The Age Old Question. Facebook, The Age Old Question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. 